Hello and welcome to the Oxford Policy Pod. I'm your host, Baudouin de Hemptine, and today we are delving into the question how, as a minister or a policymaker, do you communicate with your citizens in the 2020s? First, using the COVID pandemic measures as an example, um, we will seek to understand the current challenges for policymakers to communicate with their citizens. How do information channels evolve? What is the role of traditional media and what is the right presence on social media? How to build trust with your nation in times of crisis? Secondly, we will address major current challenges for governmental communication. This is an increasingly fragmented citizen body, growing interest for nudging techniques, philosophical questions this raises, and for all those questions, we are really lucky to have two outstanding guests for this episode. Um, both of them are working for WPP, one of the largest communication agencies globally, and their government practice is, is advising governments worldwide and the communication strategies they designed uh, build on the newest research and cutting-edge uh, knowledge in behavioral science. First, we'll chat to Laure Van Howart. Welcome, Laure. Thank you. I'm really glad to be here. She's the senior WPP's member advising the EU on how to navigate communication. This is a challenge because the EU is close to half a billion citizens, 27 countries, many different languages and cultures. And then we have uh, Sean Larkins. Welcome, Sean. Thank you. And Sean is the global director of WPP, this government practice. Um, and he's advising many governments in Africa, Australia, Asia, uh, the Middle East and Europe. Um, I think you also have a lot of uh, experience in the UK public service. Uh, yeah, I do, actually. Um, probably about two thirds of my career was in UK government, okay. including the prime minister's office. So I seen lots of things over time. Well, we're very pleased to have you here. Um, and I think we, we can dive in. So welcome to the Oxford Policy Pod. Let's start with um, the current challenges of, of government communications and, and the evolving um, landscape of the media, building on, on, on an example, uh, the COVID uh, crisis. We, we see social media feeds becoming the primary source of, of information for many citizens in Western democracies. Um, how has this changed the way government need to communicate? And, and are there new challenges linked to that? Yeah, I think uh, to start with, I think you're in more direct competition for people's attention because you're in a very crowded environment. So um, you have to compete with brands, with other organizations, with opinion leaders, with people who uh, create their own source of content or their own sources of, of information. So um, there's a more diverse landscape and you're it's very crowded. So you have to make your way through that. Um, the other thing is, of course, and we'll come back to that in, in more detail, but the high exposure to misinformation, disinformation, malinformation, um, and, and you have to, as a government, um, really navigate uh, into that world, knowing that you cannot rebut, respond, react to everything. So there's a, there's a limit to what you can do, but you have to be aware that this is where people get and form their opinions. So you have to, you have to be able to listen to that, you have to be able to monitor that um, when you work on communications. 
And I mean, we also know that anyone can create content um, and journalists, governments no longer have that kind of status of authority necessarily compared to other people who voice their concerns or their opinions quite loudly. So that's three things I see, at least, that, that are very making it more complex to communicate So this, today. this means there is less control on the content you 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 send uh, towards the public. There's a risk that your content gets uh, into controversy, that your content may not be seen because of the competition and the algorithms that are uh, present in social media. And you also sometimes, you, you really need to be ready to, to let go control and have other voices speak for you. Um, so that takes new skills like social listening, uh, which are very important. And the other thing, and, and a big thing I think is, is the fact that there's a decline in uh, media literacy. So people don't necessarily realize whether they're in front of news, opinion, or uh, other sources that are less well intended. So um Yes, it's a it's a more complex uh, landscape, as I was saying. Yeah, it is. I, I mean, it's fascinating. I think if you work in government and in communications, now is probably the most exciting time to be doing that because we've gone through, I think, a series of revolutions that have we've almost kind of ignored or, or failed to see. I, I think the first one is throughout human history, we've lived in what we termed a, an age of deference. So I would listen to you because you were my village elder or my, my priest or my imam or my rabbi. And in later centuries, my national government, my national broadcaster. Mm -hmm. For example, now I'm more likely to listen to a podcast than to my government. I'm more likely to listen to my friend or my neighbor or someone that I do online gaming with than with a, a government voice. So for the first time really over the last kind of 50 years, the first time in human history, we're not listening to people that we think are more important than us. We're starting to listen to people more who we think are just like you and me, you know, that we that share the same interests or live in the same community. And that's very difficult for governments to burst into. I think the second thing as law has set out is because there is now so much more information available to us, particularly online, um, there isn't any hierarchy to information and news anymore. I know when I grew up in the 70s and the, the 80s, you know, there was news on television at six o'clock and at 10 o'clock. And it was probably the only time we ever heard from a politician or the prime minister. So we listened in. But now news is 24 hours a day. And we have very low attention spans. So news has become more bite-sized. And that 30-second clip or that 20-second clip is probably given to us in our news feed alongside an advert for fast food and some pictures of a friend of ours having a nice dinner out on holiday. And, and so that sense of primacy of, of government and visibility of government has gone. An increasing noise overall in communication, and 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 therefore a, a higher difficulty to identify the the the, um, the important communication. Absolutely. Um, well, that that's two big challenges. Then the the um, the increasingly um, hard to penetrate com community type of of information gathering, and the second challenge of of uh, less hierarchy in in news because there's an sometimes an, an overflow of of, of information. Um, As a company, WPP, what, what do you advise to government facing those two new challenges? How, how, what, what kind of successful um, new methods can, can they use? I think it's probably not new methods, but it's things that governments have not done so much in the past. Um, I think the first very important thing is to listen and understand your audiences. So really think about 
um, what's living in people's world, trying to bring your communications closer to their uh, daily life, as it were, um, because that will help you become more of a trusted body to uh, to citizens. Uh, if the citizens feel and see that you understand them, that you listen to them, and that you actually react on things that they care about, that's really important. But also that you react in a in a way that they would. Um, agree and appreciate. So uh, their media consumption, uh, the more behavioral aspects of things, uh, you, you really need to think about uh, why people behave or react in a certain way and try to to respond to that with your communication. And you also need to think long term. Um, and it's one thing to build your reputation day by day. And a lot of ministers and, and, and officials will want you to be like building reputation for the institution. Uh, but you also need to uh, make sure that you embed it into people's lives. And so it's not just about talking about your own things, but talking about how they actually benefit uh, citizens and making them feel part of the story. And so if you look at, for example, crisis management, one thing is to react and, and make sure that you rebut certain things. But the very important thing is to have that strong core narrative for government, like what you stand for, why you're there, in which moments in life you can you, you kind of come into contact with citizens so that there's a real story that goes on all the way. And then when you have to react to some negative news or to or to or announce things, it kind of falls in a, in a broader narrative and not just. As, a, as an isolated press release or press conference. Uh, so the importance of a, of a general storytelling, general narrative where, where people can, can identify themselves too. And that's really hard for governments because, of course, everything that a government does is really important, but not everything a government does is of interest to citizens. And governments are, are competitive. Ministers are competitive. Policymakers are competitive, if not with each other for their issues. And there is a danger that governments try to over-communicate. And so one of the... the the most difficult conversations I've had to have with ministers is to say, this is a really important issue, but it's not of interest. And so what Law said about creating that narrative and that sense of priority and what's important is absolutely key. And the other thing that that, that Law has alluded to, which I think is is really, really important, is understanding the citizens. We've, we've just done a big piece of global research within the, the government practice. And 60% of government communicators in the 20 countries we look at say they don't understand what, what is in citizens' mind. They don't, they don't research amongst citizens. So we're throwing information out to many citizens about issues they care little about or they see as irrelevant to their lives, or we present them in ways that doesn't create an emotional connection between citizen and state. And if we all instinctively think of government communications, we think of press releases and communiques, governments are very poor at engaging emotionally with citizens. And that's a key weakness, and that's something we need to address. And, and do you have in mind some, some successful governments in, in that prospect, uh, which, which have been able to create such narrative where, where people could could uh, get involved into uh, if we think of, of the last couple of years the the very hard measures of, of confinement of, of um, discussions around life and death uh, with the COVID were very heavy heavy topics um, are there some governments who really managed to 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 address those topics in a wider narrative and and and, and gain the trust and, and confidence of their their citizens that's a really good question I think there are many examples of governments that have done a good job in certain areas. I don't think there are very many governments that are great across the board. 
and there are still improvements that need to be made. Um, I think quite often when we try and create that narrative, it sounds like a political slogan that people don't believe in, that people can't connect to. Um, I think some of the state governments in Australia, for example, have done a, a really good job at creating a narrative around what it what it means to be in their particular, particular state. Um, I think it tends to be the kind of thing that has been done more effectively in smaller countries or in larger countries at state level rather than federal level. Because at federal level, we're still trying to do too much. And the political drivers are still pulling us into too many different directions. So my kind of summary, I suppose, would be there's some good stuff going around, but nobody gets it perfect. Yeah, I think, I mean, just looking at what worked well and what didn't work so well, like more, more, a bit more in detail, maybe, um, I think where, where some governments were successful at some times in during the whole period that we just went through is, for example, when they came with scientific evidence, when they came with what we were saying before, when, when the audiences, people felt that they were actually understood. So when there was an understanding of the audiences, when the, the, the measures or the recommendations were made, understanding why people were behaving in, in a certain way, so based on behavioral in, insights, and also where you had the appropriate messenger. And, and I think there's a lot of examples where politicians actually went off the stage and they put other people on stage, people who came more from the health uh, side of things, and that was more reassuring to people. So leaving space to the expert when it's needed is, is something that worked relatively well. We've also seen um, that success uh, or campaigns stood out. Uh, a few of them were led by women. Uh, they were in a more empathetic tone, for example. And we've also seen success when the principles of what people needed to do were simple um, and, and where they actually understood immediately whether it was by by gestures or by mnemonic techniques that that, that was actually helping people. Mm -hmm. And the last thing I would say, an example in Germany, was their whole information site at the very beginning of the pandemic was built purely on search results. So instead of saying, we're the government, we're going to say this is what you need to do and, and impose it on people, They actually looked at what people were looking for, because then they could know what people were afraid of, what people found more simple to do, maybe have, have really a good guidance as to what content would actually help citizens. And that was something which, which worked really, really well in Germany at the beginning of the pandemic. Very insightful. Um, if we think about communication channels, uh, other than, than the content which is con conveyed, uh, those channels have been evolving quite a lot, I, I, I assume, in the... In the um, In the past years, uh, we use much more social media. The amount of different social media platforms is, is increasing. Um, how is this this change in communication channel actually also affecting the, um, the content which can be conveyed through those channels? Yeah, I think I, th there's, there's a question of, of form, like what type of content do, we, do, do people react to? What type of content actually strikes people's um, imagination because you need to snap people in, in a few seconds sometimes. So things that work two-way, um, content that is very visual, dynamic, snappy, uh, targeted to the right people, um, that's really uh, something that we see is working better. So when you work, I mean, working for a, a very... Um, very technical issue and the people that you work with ask you to build a website but to put on a, a 20 pages paper on that website that's never gonna hit any citizen it's never gonna really reach any citizen so we, we really need to think of the content again in line with the audience and not the opposite not because of well somebody wants to put it that way or somebody has written that very long piece of content and doesn't want anyone to miss 
a, no, a, a single a single word of it, but that's just not happening. So it's long form content or specific calls to action need to come after you have engaged with people. You can't just impose uh, things on people. You can't be very top down all the time. Um, so shouting out, uh, trying to to impose things on people really doesn't work. And what we see also is that messengers can vary. And so more and more uh, governments work with partners, work with relays, work with influencers, um, just because those are the voices, as Sean was saying earlier, those are the voices that we listen to in our daily lives. So um, you kind of need to trust other people to also uh, work towards your communication. Mm. I mean, one of the things that we know is that if you put a piece of content on YouTube, for example, people make a split second judgment about whether to engage with it or not, whether to watch it. So our communications need to be emotional. They need to be visual. That's quite, again, quite difficult for, for government because particularly when we're talking about scientific issues, there's that fear that we're dumbing down. We don't necessarily need to be dumbing down, but we do need to be doing things in a much more bite-sized way, in a much more visual way, in a much more emotive way. And understanding that in all of those different channels, there are strengths and weaknesses. So if I'm listening to the radio, it's probably on in the background. It's not getting my full attention. If I'm surfing the internet, then I'm, you know, I'm probably distracted or I'm looking for something in, in particular. How do we burst through that, that bubble? So we need to be much stronger in terms of short form content. We need to be much stronger in terms of how we target that content appropriately because I think one of the challenges is is that there are, there's too much stimulus in the world. We're looking at too many things at once. And most people don't find, as shocking as it would be to all of us, they don't find policy interesting. They find their lives interesting. So we need to make sure that our, our issues, our policies are communicated in a way that resonate with people's ordinary lives. And so as I understand it... Um the, the changing channels uh, that we use, which are much more visual, um, they demand uh, much more emotional and, and rapid content. Um, do you see this as, as a threat for, for um, citizens to, to be less incentivized to engage rationally with, uh, with politics and, and what's happening in their country? Or on the other hand, on the other side, do, do you see that as, a, as an opportunity to actually uh, humanize politics a bit more and, 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 and give it an emotional tint? Well, people have always engaged with politics emotionally. That's what politics are about. I mean, you, you think of any of the, the big political slogans over the last few years, make America great again, Brexit, take back control. They've been emotional slogans. They haven't been rational slogans. There's no detailed policy behind those. I think rather than seeing it as a, as a threat um, or even as an advantage, what we need to understand is what's going through citizens' minds. So Laura and I worked on a, a very big piece of research that we published last year into learnings from COVID. And what we found is that after a year or so of being told what they can do, when they can go outside, Adults just want to be treated like adults again. Citizens wanted to be treated like adults. And that means we need to step back and think about what's an adult conversation. It's not top down. It's not telling someone what to do. It's dialogue. So I think the biggest opportunity here is to look at how governments can have more of a dialogue with their citizens, with their audiences, either through social media or through other forms of engagement. But the days when we could fashion a message in isolation and speak at it from Parliament and expect people to understand it have gone. And we need to understand that emotional connection needs to be based on dialogue, 
rather than one-way communication. Very good point. I like that. <laughs> Being in dialogue with, with your policymakers. Um, we, we've touched upon one topic uh, a few minutes ago, which was that um, people were, were more and more uh, tending to listen trusted persons in their close community and close environment. Um, do policymakers need to to use this this tendency and, and try to leverage on, on on this new new way of, of opinion making, or uh, is that a threat to to cohesion in within your society and, and to nation? And, and should policymakers try to to be very cautious about using this this fragmentation and polarization in their communication strategies? So that's very, again another really good question. Um, I don't know whether you'd like to go first or I can go first. Well, I think we 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 do have some some insight from conversations we had recently for for an, another study that we're doing um, with with leaders about the role of governments and and institutions in um, in 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 kind of um, societal build or how how uh, how we can react to that. Um, it's it's really hard because as soon as you choose to intervene or to participate in this fragmentation or defragmentation in cohesion you could be seen as taking taking us aside so so for governments a lot of people that we talked to were rather not saying they have a role to play in more cohesion in society but of course they have to be mindful of how people get their information um, and they have to be to, to to make sure that they try to reach those harder to reach communities or those more 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 closed communities but that could be through some some people who really have authority in that in those communities so it's not really following the movement but maybe trying to identify uh some people that have a voice in that community and work with these people and an example um that i i know of is for example the european parliament for their um go to vote or elections campaign as they call it they're working a lot with civil society organizations to reach communities where they would not penetrate as the parliament directly but they work really with those organizations to make sure um, that these organizations have all the information that they can speak about elections and go vote because you have to defend your your rights, etc. So it's another way. It's, again, letting go of control. Uh, it is building on the fact that there are different communities, but not in a way that you are, you, you kind of intervene or, or misuse the system. Let's put it that way. I mean, I think what's really fascinating is that You know, we're all starting to review and discuss what the role of government is. And we are doing that in a time where our audiences are fragmented, our societies are, are increasingly discordant, and there is an increase in, in social dislocation, I suppose. And, and social media plays a part in that, but it didn't start it, and it's not the only issue. But it does bring into, I think, sharp focus about some fundamental principles about how, how governments need to act and in whose interests governments should be acting. And you see time and time again, coverage by uh, the media and behaviors by politicians that suggest that sometimes government is acting in its own interests and that not that of citizens. But what we did within the government practice, we did a big piece of research across 10 countries um, with 10,000 members of the public. And these countries ranged from Australia to Saudi Arabia, from democratic to less democratic countries. And what we found is there were certain key, I don't know whether you want to call them issues or behaviors, some that were 
more subconscious than others, but there were a range of things that citizens expected from their government or how they expected their governments to behave. And if governments behaved in that way, then they were more inclined to listen to them and believe them. And law has talked about a couple of those already, having a very clear narrative. You know, if you're a politician, you've fought for years to get into power. Why? What's your vision? What's your government going to do? So core narrative was really important. Um, people instinctively feel better and closer towards governments that are seen to be working in the common good and seen to be supporting social cohesion rather than needlessly dividing citizens. Um, citizens are, are mature enough to understand that governments are having to make difficult decisions every day. They are willing for governments to explain that complexity to them. So let's stop treating citizens as, as children. And there needs to be a degree of coherence by which, I mean... Governments need to do what they say they're going to do and stop contradicting themselves. And if governments start to behave in those ways, that's where we start to rebuild trust. And if we start to rebuild trust in governments, at least some of our audiences will stop looking at conspiracy theories and those that seek to, to divide us. They'll look more to government because they have more confidence and trust in government. So this, this looks like a, a pledge for more genuine and, and candid behavior for, from policymakers. Yeah, from policymakers and politicians. And I think the challenge that we face as policymakers is that we can have a fantastic policy, but if a politician behaves in a way that undermines that policy, you know, good example being, you know, in numerous countries, politicians broke their own lockdown laws. There is a policy developed to keep people safe. But if politicians are acting in a way that undermines that, undermines that confidence and trust in government, then everything starts to fall apart. And I think there's one really important thing before I pause for breath, that I think is really important for us to notice that survey after survey, when we talk to citizens, they may have a low level of confidence and trust in government, but they have a much higher level of confidence and trust, both in government services and in government workers. And that tells us something again about how we need to be engaging, who needs to be engaging, who needs to be supporting citizens. It doesn't begin and end with politicians, but too many times over COVID, that's where we, we saw communications begin and end with a politician and not with a policymaker. And, and since we've been talking about trust now, um, maybe can, can we say a few words on, on this new big topic, big trend, which is nudging? Uh, if, if maybe you, can, you could explain briefly to, to the auditors what we understand with nudging and, and how this nudging is, is uh, actually building trust or uh, whether it's removing some part of agency from, from citizens' behavior and, 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 and this might... I don't know, trigger some some distrust. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually believe that um, nudging isn't that new. You know, I think governments have been doing it for a long time. I think it's become popularized over the last 10 to 15 years. And we have the UK and Australia and America and various other countries saying they've got nudging units, behavior change units. I mean, for as long as we've been making policy and communicating we've been trying to change people's behavior you know to stop smoking is is not a new issue to get people to drive more safely is not a new issue so behavior change is is something that's inherent to how government operates and how we deliver policy i think what's new is this kind of focus on what we term a kind of short-term behavioral intervention so you know how would you describe a nudge some people describe it as a heuristic or or choice architecture 
but the kind of classic nudge is a prompt for us to do something. So if I go to the, you know, the canteen here at Blavatnik, you know, where is the fruit? If I see the fruit first in the canteen, I'm more likely to go for fruit than a candy bar. And so we can change the layout of, of the canteen. I think the big problem I have with with nudges is that they only work really well for a one-off behaviour. By one-off behaviour, I mean something we do really infrequently. You know, we can nudge people to pay their tax on time. Uh, we can nudge people to register to vote. But most of the big policy issues that we are dealing with need long-term, sustained population-level behaviour change. And nudges don't work. And the clearest example I kind of give of that is sometimes when we're here at the university, uh, I've got a colleague from Singapore, I've got a colleague from Canada with me. Now, they've probably got terrible jet lag. Um, and I can nudge them once every half an hour, and it probably keeps them awake. But if I get too engrossed in 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 talking to, to, to people in the lecture theatre or the classroom, and I forget, they're going to fall asleep. <laughs> and that is exactly the same as what tends to happen within society and nudges. If we remove the nudge, quite often the behaviour returns. And it's really, really difficult for government to continually try and nudge people because it takes time and resources and money and effort, and people get bored about it, which is why we need to look more strategically at behaviour change and changing behaviours and rather than thinking one a one-off short-term solution will change things for the long term. And, and where do you see then the, the long-term sources of behavioural change? Can we, shall we focus more on, on internal drivers uh, of change within persons rather than, than their environment and, and the, the nudges they can see around them? Do, do governments need to work on On, on, on norms, morality, values? Or? All of those. I mean, governments need to realise that, that what drives our behaviour isn't, isn't a single facet of our personality or, or our society. You know, what we do know is that, is that things like norms and morality that you just mentioned work really well are much more effective ways to get people to change their behaviour. If I live in a, a very religious community or a very religious country or a country that prioritises and values conformity over independence for example. But we know in those countries where people see themselves as, as more independent, you know, United States, Italy, for example, the legitimacy of, of government policy is, is a, a greater driver. So we work on a, on a, a behaviour change model that includes about eight different facets of, of behaviour. We need to research amongst our audiences for every policy issue to identify which of those facets of personality is going to be easiest to change there's no quick win and my frustration around nudges is that we kind of think that we can do something today and, and the world will be much better tomorrow it might be for a very short period of time but it won't be for the long term it's much more complex than that yeah because i think i mean changing a behavior doesn't happen overnight um so it's it's something long term you're asking people to um to transform something that they were doing into something else which they may not have done before, like taking different types of actions, uh, adopting new behaviors. And so um, it, it requires time and it requires that people focus on uh, the new behavior. And I think that's something that you cannot have with nudges because, well, once it's 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 kind of external and it's it's something that stops you when it's there. But if it's not there, it doesn't. So, so the fact that sustaining a, a new behavior uh, takes time and, and, and focus uh, is also an important thing to um, to think about. And you mentioned transparency. Um, you know, the public aren't stupid. The public know when we're trying to 
help them change their, you know, attitude to recycling, uh, their diet, for example, it's relatively obvious. I think it is incumbent on governments to be very clear about why they want to change certain behaviours and how they want to go out doing it and do that with the best interests of society at the moment. And there are big problems around legitimacy when, we, when we're not transparent. There is a an example in the in Australia at the moment, which relates to benefit fraud and a program around kind of robo debt. And actually what we're going to do is we're going to use automated, you know, phone calls to to get people to repay their to repay their taxes. And the first stage of that of that project was about sending a letter to benefit claimants' homes to say, we think you've been overpaid. <laughs> and for us to deal with this, you need to respond to this letter. Now, you know, the government knew that at least 50% of people that receive a letter like that won't reply to it. But also, the allegation going through the Royal Commission at the moment is that the government used behavioural science to actually craft a letter that they knew people would not respond to so they could put them into an automated recovery process. It's crazy. It's crazy. It's immoral. It's it's democratically irresponsible. Um, so that's an issue, a live issue that's going through a Royal Commission in Australia at the moment. Very, very damaging to confidence and trust in, in society, not be, just because it's immoral, but actually people on benefits that were told they needed to repay money. There are instances of people committing suicide. There are instances of people losing their homes. There are instances of a family breakdown. You know, these are not esoteric issues. And we need to use the power and the resources of government always for social good. I know that's, that sounds idealistic, but if we're looking to change people's behaviours, it needs to be for the good of society as a whole and not as a, a, a political expediency. Thank you. This is this is really insightful and and triggers many many more questions. Um, I, I'm afraid we, we're reaching towards the end of of our dialogue now. Um, so we've touched upon the importance of, of narrative and 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 touching citizens emotionally in order to to bring about change. We've touched about the idea of treating citizens as, as adults that they they want to to enter into a dialogue with their policymakers and and politicians and and not just a top-down communication. Um, maybe can I ask both of you to to briefly share with us your concluding remarks on, on, on the most pressing uh, coming challenges for government communication? Um, I would say from, from recent conversations we had um, that the increased politicization of government communication is, is an issue. Um, because um, it hints for more control and less authenticity in, 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 in what's being brought to the public. So I think more authentically communicating, uh, taking account of your audiences, um, yeah, and be closer to the people that you actually uh, communicate with. And I think an issue, I completely agree with you, Law. I think that's probably the number one priority. I think for me, what's coming in a close second is actually the ability to think long term. I mean, we've had yeah, a massive crisis in terms of in terms of COVID, in terms of the invasion of Ukraine, in terms of the kind of cost of energy and cost of living crises. And those crises are long term. And I don't see much thinking uh, or certainly any communication that's trying to to look at how we tackle those over the long term. They're short-term knee-jerk responses. We need to understand that some of these big, you know, we now talk about perma-crises because they're always going to be here. 
if they're going to be here for a long time, where long time, where is our long-term thinking? A lot of the communication we see, yes, is is absolutely becoming more politicized, but it's also becoming more knee-jerk and more short-term. And that's not an effective way of delivering policy, nor is it an effective way of increasing confidence and trust in government, which has to be our aim. So let's stop with finger pointing, with firefighting, but uh, let's look to to a longer term goal. Exactly. It's been a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much for being here, uh, Laure and Sharon. Um, a summary of the main points of this podcast uh, will be found in the description of the episode on Spotify. Thank you very much to your to you, our audience members as well. Uh, remember to follow us on social media, on Instagram at Oxford Policy Pod dash and on Twitter at Oxford Policy Pod. Uh, like, share, comment, and see you next time.